and off the field, women in sports are inspiring and motivating others to be the best versions of themselves, rewriting the rules and changing the game. This is the On Her Turf podcast, hosted by Katherine Tappen. Welcome to the On Her Turf podcast. I'm Katherine Tappen. Thank you so much for joining us this time. Today we are chatting with Mary Carrillo. Mary is a retired professional tennis player. She's one of my colleagues at NBC Sports, serving as a correspondent on our Olympic Games and also as an analyst for NBC's tennis coverage. And also since 1997, Mary has worked as a correspondent for HBO's Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, where she won a Sports Emmy Award for her feature on The Hoyt Family. So Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Catherine. By the way, I, I don't want you to forget the fact that for NBC Sports, I also do dog shows. Well, the I know. Dog show, the Beverly That's... Hills Dog Show. How, how do you bury the lead? I know. Well, that's so funny because I have that coming later on in the podcast. But, you know, let's get right to the dog action because clearly that's where your passion is. <laughs> I mean, we have the dog show on NBC I, I, later I, this month, um, which is exciting. Yeah. And you're going to be a part of that. And the national dog show presented that's by wonderful. Purina. How, yeah, how much fun is that for you to do that show? Honestly, it's one of my favorite sporting events. I, I, I'm not even lying. I've had dogs my whole life. I've got a couple on my bed right now looking Aww. at me. Well, they're, they're already they're already bored by me, but uh, <laughs> it is it is great. It gets an incredible audience. The only thing I've I'm a, and I've covered Wimbledon. I've covered every, all kinds of major sports. The only thing that gets a higher rating than the dog shows that I'm a part of uh, are the Olympics. Oh so my go. gosh. Well, I mean, I believe it. Who's not a dog lover? Whether you have a dog or you don't have a dog. I mean, how do you prep for this show? You clearly are a dog lover and you have dogs yourself. But how do you prep for yes. it? Well, I'm very lucky because uh, I've been working for a long time with David Fry, who is an absolute uh, pro and expert. Uh, we did uh, the Westminster Dog Show together. That's where we started. We did that for years. And he has taught me so much about dogs and how they are shown and how they are judged. And I mean, even over the last couple of months, he sends us on the, on the dog team. Uh, he sends us <laughs> updates and good storylines. I do like for the national dog show, I do like behind the scenes stories, uh, you know, uh, nice little profiles, features on the dogs. Uh, and so he keeps me up on all of that. It's, it's, a, it's, here's why we, it does so well, Catherine. It, it's, we shoot it the weekend before uh, Thanksgiving, and then we collapse it into a two-hour show, and then it runs after the Macy's Day Parade and before the football and everything else. It runs at noon for a couple of – and then it airs a couple of times more. So it's family entertainment. I mean, what's not to love? It's a bunch <laughs> of beautiful dogs. You know, it's funny. I was on a flight last year. I was going out to L.A. to cover the Rams game, and John O'Hurley, who I've met a couple of times uh, through the American Century Championship yeah. golf tournament out in Tahoe, he was on my flight with his wife and his kids, and he had been traveling back that day. So it was the Saturday after Thanksgiving. He had been in New York for a couple of weeks, he said, because he comes for the dog show, but he stays for a little while right. and celebrates the holiday. And he was telling me all about the dog show. He said, well, what are you going to L.A. for? I said, well, I'm going to cover the Rams game. He said, we have a football team in L.A. I mean, he was so funny about it, but <laughs> he absolutely adores doing that guy. dog show. He, and he does an unbelievable job. He's our host, and he, and he loves dogs. He's written a play about dogs. I mean, oh my yeah. gosh. We're, we, are, we are a hearty bunch, let me tell you. We're, <laughs> he we're also apologizes. I, mean, I do cover other, I cover other athletes, too. 
but they are definitely the friendliest. Yeah, no, um, yeah, that's for sure. I, don't, I, I I never get licked by any other athlete, so <laughs> that's for sure. Probably that's a good thing. You don't want to. Yeah, hey, that's what, a good thing. Exactly. What What are the unexpecteds when you're doing a dog show? I mean, we know what they are in sports. They happen all the time, and we have to react as broadcasters to that. But when you're broadcasting a dog show, I mean, what are some of the craziest stories you've had over the years? Well, you know, uh, historically, you know, there are seven different groups. And historically, uh, terriers win more than any other because they're such a fun breed. I mean, such a fun group of dogs. They're very animated, and it looks like they're always happy and excited and exuberant. Uh, and sometimes, like, you, you never know. Sometimes a dog has its day. And, and like, uh, a dog that you don't see coming like a Pomeranian, not just because they're small, but like, you know, a dog that you don't think is even going to get out of the group into the best of show, you know, the top from it, for the top seven from every group. Um, sometimes that happens. And it's so funny because I think they're all gorgeous. I just think they're all beautiful. I think everybody should win. And, but then <laughs> there'll be an upset, some, some dog that hasn't won a lot in the past and has this great show day, you know, and David Fry will like go, oh, and he's going crazy i'm thinking like yeah that's a beautiful dog why is that a surprise that's outstanding (laughs) um so that kind of stuff happens and it's it's really delightful i I would just like to have one of the dogs when it retires one of these beautiful just just give it to me i'll take it when it's done with its showcasing and uh no longer on the working force and they're so well-mannered. I mean, my dogs, I love them dearly, but they're idiots. I mean, they're just <laughs> moronic. They don't know how to heal. They don't know, how, you know, they look at me like I'm the idiot, which is also probably true. And and these dogs, they, they're so well-behaved and they don't nip at each other. They're, they, you just watch them around each other and they're just wagging their tail. It's just, anyway, I can go on and on uh, about dogs. I, I know, I can tell. I can more t- stuff. How many dogs do you have, by the way? <laughs> Two. Two. What are they? What kind? One, one's, one of them is a 13-year-old West Highland Terrier. I'm, I'm big on terriers. And the other mm. one, Petey Boy, we don't know what the hell he is. He's, <laughs> he's a rescue. He's so, but he's some kind of a terrier mix. I know you're he's, an animal lover, and my, I know that you also like cats, too. But are, aren't you allergic to cats? I'm, I am highly allergic. And I've had cats, too. That just shows how stupid I am. Yes. <laughs> try to keep them outdoors, <laughs> and I try to keep them away from my skin. Aww. Yes. I, and and oh, at the Olympics, I've done the last 14 Olympics, the last 11 for NBC. And I've also got, I think they know me enough that when I do features in China, I got to, uh, I got to play with panda bears. Mm. And for the Vancouver, that was for Beijing, for the Vancouver Games, um, I got to see polar bears. So, yes, I will. Wow. It's, at, yeah, 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 yeah. It, I'll, I'll go where the animals are. That's for yeah, sure. That's what allergy meds and tissues are for, right? Don't sacrifice the time with the animals. Just deal deal with the uh, the after effects later. <laughs> I should have a, I should have a Benadryl sponsorship. Yes. There you go. And we should do an animal podcast. That would be fun. I love animals too. But let's, uh, <laughs> too. We, are, we are talking on this On Her Turf podcast. And I, and I have to tell you, Mary, when we were brainstorming the idea for this On Her Turf, back in August, and we wanted to go with this podcast and we were listing um, names and people who we thought would be great for it. Um, the team that supports me here just kept saying, we need the Mary Carrillo types. 
And your name just kept coming up. And, you know, you have paved the way for so many of us in the industry, including myself. Uh, And and this podcast really centers around female empowerment and and the athlete in these females and how that translates to the rest of their life on and off the turf, quote unquote. When you hear those two words, female empowerment, what do you think of? I think of Billie Jean King. I, you know, I think of the woman that has inspired me for almost my entire life. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I was drawn to a sport that she had been championing uh, ahead of me. And, you know, I always, uh, over the years, we've gotten to be great friends. Um, and she turned 75 in just a couple of weeks. We're going to have a, a nice 75th birthday party for her at the New York Historical Society because she's donating, you know, all of her stuff or a lot of her stuff there. Uh, she has been a remarkable force of nature and inspiring and illuminating, and she continues to fight the good fight. And I'm, again, I'm just so lucky that I landed in, in her sport, and, and I'm probably, it's probably my favorite sport because of Billie Jean King and, and because she was, she's such a, um, She's such a populist, you know, she speaks to everybody, to every kind of minority, to every kind of every man and woman. Um, and she's still out there. She's still out there, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know about you. I'm the first clear memory I have of being a child. I was probably about four years old. My father threw me a ball and I caught it. And it was just the most glorious sensation of my young <laughs> athletic career. He threw it and I caught it. And I spent the poor guy, I probably spent the rest of the day asking, demanding that he keep throwing me the ball. And that's when I knew I was, oh, I'm good at this. I'm good at this. You know, and then you kind of start living your life that way. You want to be outside all the time. You want to catch more balls and hit balls and play with all manner of athletic equipment. So it defined me at a very early age. I, I decided that that was my identity, the one I really wanted. So when you talk about empowerment, that's what empowered me. That's what I figured... I was going to be good at. And once you're good at something at a young age, you kind of figure, well, I can, I can, might be good at some other stuff too. Well, I totally can sympathize with you on that, throwing the ball. And I mean, I've never had a day in my life where I haven't been active in some regard or wanting to play some kind of a sport or involved in sports or talking about sports. Um, it, like you said, it just defines you. It's who you are. And your childhood, yeah. you grew up in Queens. I know you're living in lovely yeah. Naples now, which we're all jealous of living in the Northeast. But yeah. <laughs> you grew up in Queens. Um, for those listening who don't know, Queens is a New York City borough on Long Island across the East River from Manhattan. So when did you start playing tennis? And who was it that taught you to play the game? I was I had I was very lucky because um, we I'm, I come from a, a very pretty little town uh, in Douglaston, near Douglaston, Queens, a uh, little place called Douglas Manor. It's right on the water, right on Little Neck Bay, mm. um, which is part of Long Island Sound. And a couple of blocks away from my house was the Douglaston Club, and it had a swimming pool, and it was it was. It used to be called the Douglas and Yacht Club, which was a bit overnamed. We didn't have a lot of yachts. We had a lot of sailboats. But <laughs> it also had five tennis courts, three clay courts, two hard courts. And that's where I learned how to play tennis. And fortunately for me, I started playing probably when I was about 10 years old. Uh, fortunately for me, there was a kid a couple of years younger than me named John McEnroe who played at the same club. Uh, and he and I started mixing it up early. And... Back in the day, it was easy to get a, a court at the Douglas and Club. 
you know, uh, and then John became John McEnroe. And <laughs> all of a sudden, tennis got very big in our little town. And the courts were harder to come by. And I followed John around, even though I'm two years older than John. I, I followed him around. He started playing tournaments, so I did. He started, you know, training with terrific pros uh, like the late, great Harry Hopman and Tony Palafox at a, a now a famous place called the Port Washington Tennis Academy. So I followed him around. And then, you know, we played the tour together. He played a lot longer than me. I had bad knees. I was running on rims early. But so that's real. I was very lucky to grow up in that little town uh, and just a couple of blocks away from John McEnroe because I watched how good he was. And, and, and John wasn't even, I practiced much more than John. I wanted, I'm just trying to play catch up with this little kid mm-hmm. and he was following the seasons. John played basketball during basketball season. He played football and he played soccer. He was on the track team at his school. I mean, he did everything. And I very quickly just devoted myself to tennis, uh, just trying to catch up to him. So it was mm-hmm. great having him around, um, and seeing, I mean, how good he was when he was only about three feet tall, you know, and then he just, he just kept getting taller and better. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like you guys were siblings and you still are. I mean, I know you have a a long lasting friendship with John. You guys have won tournaments together playing in in mixed doubles. Um, But, you know, you've known him practically your whole life. What, what was his personality like then? (laughs) Is it, was he the same John that we know that we watch on TV? Honestly, it's 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 a it's a good question. He was always supremely talented at every sport. I mean, we played hockey down at Memorial Field and football and you know all kinds of sports. But uh, John, you know, his temper didn't flare as a kid because, frankly, he was so much better than everybody in in just about everything he played. It like in junior tournaments, you don't there aren't linesmen. There's not a chair umpire. You call your own lines and and. So John never got angry, really, until he was about 18 years old, uh, <laughs> playing Wimbledon for the first time in 1977. And it, until then, I I never saw him. I can't remember him getting truly aggravated on a tennis court. Um, so I, you know that part of him became sort of outsized. And mm-hmm. but now these days, I, yeah, you're right. I call the French Open with John uh, for NBC every year. And we've worked together at ESPN and USA Network and CBS as well, calling tennis. And he's an unbelievable guy to sit next to. He's very smart. He's very quick. He sees a match almost right away. He sees patterns that someone like me might not necessarily see. John might be calling a match from the guy who's the guy who's uh, on whose side you know the the winning shots are coming from, and I might be looking on the other side because I relate more <laughs> to, to the the guy losing. Um, it's very, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. You know, honestly, you're, you're, you're lucky if you grow up in the same place at the same time with people like John. That's how I feel. Well, I think it's so cool too, to look at where both of you are. You know, you said earlier and John McEnroe grew up and became John McEnroe. Well, you went on and became Mary Carrillo, which is no small feat either, Mary. And certainly, um, it's amazing when you look at the two of you guys and, where you both came from, this teeny little town, you know, on the Long Island Sound, and, and you both, your careers were, were very similar in the sense of, you know, the playing pro tennis, but then ultimately moving on to the TV side. So um, it's such an interesting story, and you, two unique personalities, you two, and it's, uh, I bet the friendship, the stuff that you can't talk about on a podcast or on the 
Javier uh, is way more important to you and special as well. Um, it's, but speaking- it's nice. And, you know, John's got a kid brother, Patrick McEnroe, that has followed in the same line. You know, Patrick was a much better player than I was, too. And, and now he's been I've, I worked for years with Patrick as well um, at ESPN. Wow. So, yeah, it's odd that, you know, three kids from a little town could end up, you know, still playing together, seeing each other, yeah. conti- you know, continuing a friendship, you know, 50 years on. That's oh, special. Very special. Um, so yeah. you played pro yeah. tennis um, for for a little bit yourself, and you transitioned then, though, into television. So I want to know, what were some of the challenges you had when you were transitioning? Your identity was changing from a professional athlete to a broadcaster. Uh, what was that like for you, that period of time? Well, I mean, Catherine, and I'd love to hear your story sometime, too. Um, for me, I was when I was first hired, it was strictly for women's tennis. Um, even though, <laughs> um, you know, men's tennis and women's tennis, same exact rules, same size tennis court, you know, <laughs> but for years, uh, it, it was thought that, you know, all right, women call women's tennis and men's men call men's tennis. So I was kind of, I was kind of stuck in that place for a while. Um, and until finally, and, and I'm lucky. I mean, the, the people who have given me the most breaks in my career have been guys because men are, seem always to have the power. I, had a, I was very fortunate that the, the people I worked for at a certain point decided, well, yeah, she should call men's tennis too. Why not? Uh, and then at a certain point, you know, it became, well, she can call other stuff too. Why don't we, why don't we give her a shot? I, I, I'll tell you this. This, the thing that changed there, I was working at USA Network um, doing the U.S. Open coverage, and I was working with um, Al Troutwig. And I'm sure you know Al Troutwig for, sure. for many years. He's... So Al and I were calling the first match of the night, and it was Chris Everett. I'll never forget. She, she won a match against a woman named Sharon Walsh in, I swear to God, like 39 minutes. And then the wow. rest of the night was going to be men's tennis. So I was effectively done in a little over half an hour. Um, because now it was a guy calling the, the guy's match. And I stayed in the booth because Yannick Noah, this terrific French player with a lot of Gallic flair, was playing next. And I, was, I wanted to sit there and watch him. It was a good seat, you know. And I started passing Al Troutwig notes and about, about Noah and about Noah's opponent and about, you know, and he would read them and then sort of just fold them up and move them to the side. And he wasn't using any of my material. And I'm not, so I kept doing it, you know, like an idiot. I, I must have given him five or six notes, and none of them got read. And now I'm thinking, ah, oh, the hell with it. The guy doesn't think I know men's tennis. All right. At the end of the night, he snatched up the notes that I had given him and said, follow me. And he, we went down to a guy named Gordon Beck. He was in charge of USA Tennis at the time. He put the notes on Gordon's desk and said, Mary handed me these during the match, and I refused to read them because they should be coming out of her mouth. Wow. And the next night, I, the next night, Catherine, I was doing men's tennis. Wow. Oh, that's night. amazing. And after, and there were so, I know, it's the true story. Too. Um, and there were so much more men's tennis than women's tennis at the time. So all of a sudden, I wasn't just doing part-time TD work. I was, it, was, it became a regular gig. And from there, I, I was able to just keep going. But again, it's, the, you know, Al Trawi gave me that break. Mm-hmm. Gordon Beck, you know, my boss, he gave me the next break. I've been fortunate. 
Well, you have to have people along the way that support you and that believe in you. And, and certainly, you know, those are the few people early on that you mentioned there that, that allowed you to have this great career and gave you the opportunity. I mean, that's, that's, those are some great stories. And that doesn't always happen. And, you know, Mary, one thing you said that, that really resonated early on in that conversation, you said men always have the power. Um, and, yes. and they do, and they continue to uh, in many regards. But what do you think of this whole, you know, we are seeing a changing of the tide in some regards and in certain industries more yes. than others uh, that we are experiencing right now, this Me Too movement. What do you think of all of this? Uh, it's, you know, there's still a long way to go, but it, it certainly, the, the, it has changed. And, and over the years, I have grown, you know, there have been times when I've gotten very frustrated with the fact that there was such an imbalance of power. And I would get frustrated, not just for myself, but if I thought the United States Tennis Association wasn't being fair to Billie Jean King about something, I'd complain to Billie about it. And I would say to her, how can you keep going? Don't you get frustrated? I'm frustrated for you. Like, can't. And she would just quietly say, you have to stay in the room. You have to be in that room. You can't quit. A couple of times when I've gotten really frustrated with something, she would say, you can't leave the room. You can't go outside the building and throw rocks at the windows. That's not how it works. She said, the more women we get in those rooms where decisions are being made, only then will we start having that kind of power. And I, <laughs> I, I needed her all along the way to tell me things like that, to tell me that, you know, <laughs> you don't give up. You just, you know, you just keep trying to make it better. So that was a Did, good lesson. There have been many good lessons I've had from her. Yeah, and that's, so that must be some of the, the best advice that you've received over the years among, I'm sure you've received a lot of good advice and given out a lot of good advice, I must add. I, I think I sound an awful lot like Billie Jean. Uh, um, <laughs> I, learned, I learned at her knee. I've had, I mean, there have been, some terrific mentors in my life and but chief among them has been billing mm. um and and uh, again that she's so indefatigable as she reaches her 75th birthday is really impressive <laughs> really impressive i i just don't know how you can, you know again she she had these long fights with the united states tennis association for decades and guess what she hung in there and she hung tough and now the USCA National Tennis Center, where the U.S. Open is played, is named after Billie Jean King. I mean, isn't that extraordinary? Yes. It, it, yes. It's only it's only because she was willing to hang in there, and and to continue to make her points, and and she's uh, and more often than not, she's on the side of the angels, and you mm. you know you hope that at a certain point that that stuff kicks in and counts. And how extraordinary that she, as well, has this relationship with you, and you've been able to call her a mentor and a, and a friend and a role model for for your whole life as well. I mean, that's that's not a bad person to have. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> no, that's, no, that's you know, Mary, did did anyone along the way ever tell you you can't? Um, I will. I'll tell you another delirious, ridiculous story of my pointy-headed career. There was a time when ESPN was using me. I worked on and off for ESPN for many years. Uh, and I loved Davis Cup. It's the great international competition, nation against nation, storied history. And uh, this was, ESPN wanted to use me for Davis Cup coverage. But the United, <laughs> I keep bringing up the United States Tennis Association. Um, they wanted they said that they, they couldn't, they, ESPN couldn't use me on that telecast of Davis Cup tennis because 
get this. I had never played Davis Cup. And oh I'm and so when it gets explained to me that that's what was holding me back, and they're like, well, yeah, because women don't play Davis Cup, men do. <laughs> like, right, right. That's oh, that's a little unfair. <laughs> so, oh and, my gosh. and again, and, and so that was there. The USTA said no. They wanted to use one of their former players. They wanted to use an American guy. And God bless another producer of mine uh, named Brian Williams, who said to ESPN, if if they won't let Mary work the Davis Cup. I'm not working it either. So Brian Williams delivers an ultimatum on my behalf, and the USCA finally says, "All right, all right, she can do it." Again, it's it's <laughs> the wow. relationships that you have with your coworkers um, kicks in in such a big way. I mean, Brian and Brian and everyone at ESPN knew how passionate I was about Davis Cup. They knew that I'd if I got to go, I'd give them a, I'd give them everything I had. It's all I ever tell any employer who, who hires me for anything. You know, I always say, I'll give you everything I got. And, and that's what I always try to do. And again, that's another, yeah, the, I get stopped because I'm a woman. And then somebody steps up and says, no, that's not fair. So, yeah, I've had, I've had moments like that, as I'm sure you have too, Catherine. Yes, I can certainly think of, of a handful of times, but I, I think, but you know, you remember most the people that are there beside you and the ones that want to help get you to the next level, the Brian Williamses, the Al Troutwigs, you know, the people that really yes. support you and it doesn't matter whether you're male, female, you know, what color your skin is or what nationality you are. If you're good at what you do and you are confident in what you said, working, being a great teammate as well. I mean, that, that is yeah. half the, that, that's half the battle there too. I mean, I, I've, I'm sure you have too worked with plenty of people that we don't necessarily believe are good teammates, but um, no, yes. those are great and, stories. And, and I'll tell you, well, I got, a, I got a billion of them, but I, I will tell you one more. So uh, recently the women's sports foundation had their annual gala. Uh, it was last. It was just last week. Uh, I saw it. I saw the publicity it's, about it. Very okay, cool. So it's a nice event, right? So, and for for years, I've been lucky enough to be one of the MCs, uh, along with Julie Fowdy, a very old friend of mine, um, and Jessica Mendoza. So you know Jesse Mendoza. Sure, baseball. Yes, softball. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean broadcasting and baseball, but yes, softball player. Great Olympic softball player, exactly. And then she started getting some gigs, you know, in baseball, uh, covering the MLB. And the three of us were supposed to be the, you know, the co-hosts of this year's Women's Sports Foundation Gala. And about a week or 10 days before uh, it was held, we get this email from Jess. And she says, guys, I am so sorry, but I'm working the postseason and I can't be there. <laughs> and Fowdy and, and I both write back to her, honey, this is what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, don't be sorry. Be happy. Don't, don't apologize. We were so proud of her and so pleased for her that, you know, she was going to be in the postseason. She's going to, you know, I mean, that to us was a big deal. She's going to be on the radio calling the World Series. Yeah, yeah I mean, how? Man, have at it. No kidding. How cool is that? And she'll be back to MCU with you guys maybe next time or, or another event I, down the road. Or hopefully not. Hopefully or, they saw how – I mean, she's, she's so good. Like, yes, that's when, you know, if and when you get to the point where your talent and your passion and your commitment is unignorable, 
you got to like the idea that everyone else sees it too. And, and somebody opens the door and says, yeah, come on in. Come on in. Mary, you gave a commencement speech in 2014 to the class of 2014, I should say, at Elon. That's where your daughter, Rachel, went to school. Uh, I'm yes. very curious to know how you prepared for that, how you de- decided what your number one message to this young, vibrant class of now educated college students who are going out to the workforce. I mean, <laughs> how did you prepare for that? Oh, God. It, Catherine, it was actually very, um, it was nerve-wracking because Rach told me, you know, towards, after the first couple of months of her senior year at Elon, which is a beautiful little school in North Carolina, she said, Mom, I've been asked to find out if you would be the commencement speaker. And, I mean, Catherine, you have to understand, I did not go to college. Um, I had, at best, uh, a very haphazard high school career because I was playing so much tennis. My attendance record was spotty, to say the least. I probably, they probably let me graduate without the requisite number of credits. And I said to Rachel, I, I said, Rachel, what on earth could I possibly tell your friends? Uh, what, what advice could I give? I never even went to college, let alone graduate from college. And God bless my kid. Rachel just said, Mom, just, just tell him what you've been telling me my, my whole life. So that's, <laughs> so that's kind of what I, that's what I tried to do. I, I basically, I spoke from my heart. I, and I, I told them about the athletic heart and why I so admire it and what I consider to be one of the great qualities and characters of any athlete I've ever seen is the quality of resilience, of getting up when you've been knocked down, of being willing to get up and keep going and try again or try something new, make adjustments, make concessions, work harder or work less so you don't keep getting injured. I, and so my, that was sort of the theme of my, <laughs> of my commencement speech. Um, and, and that's, I think, any, any athlete will, would tell you that that's one of the great lessons that sports will teach anybody at any level of sports, you know? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I think that's the greatest compliment, too, that your daughter, Rachel, said, just tell them what you've been telling me my whole life. I mean, that, that says that, you know, what a great, great mom you are, and you've raised this beautiful young woman who's now graduating from college, and you talk about sports and what it means, and I mean, I think any of us that are athletes or even those that participate in sports in recreation or however else they want to participate, um, you know, you, you learn so much from your mistakes. Do you think that yes. you learn more from your mistakes than you do your accomplishments in life? I've heard that a lot, and it sounds like it makes sense that that would be true. So, yeah, it, it's probably true. But I got to tell you, there is nothing, <laughs> there's nothing like success as well, because well, that's true. Like, too. <laughs> if it's a if it's a tennis tournament, if it's a, there was I, it didn't happen much to me, Catherine. But every when I played tennis, I won a couple of tournaments, not big ones, small ones, but. There was a, a friend of mine. I, I had won a tournament in, in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, when I was like 19 or 20 years old. And I went out with a friend of mine that night. And I had this, I guess I had this look on my face that she was trying to identify. And I said, I don't even know how to explain how I feel about winning this tournament. And she said, she looked at me and she said, you didn't lose. <laughs> like, and it was like, it hadn't occurred to me that, I had gone all week without losing. 
<laughs> it doesn't happen much. And if you are a professional tennis player, like 99% of you are going to lose at some point during a week, you know? <laughs> like, yes. And that was, <laughs> and it was just such a funny moment. Like, oh, that's why this feels unusually special. Nobody beat me this week. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think there's plenty to learn from mistakes, um, but there's also a hell of a lot to learn, you know, because then you start thinking, all right, why the hell didn't I lose? Why did I, did I, was my service percentage much better this week? Or was my, were, did I hit more winners or did I just make a lot fewer errors? So, yes, you can, you, I think you can learn from both. And, and I, I have to also throw this in, kind of taking a little bit of a U-turn here, but just being around people, like tennis is very international. So being around so many different players from so many different countries, so many different cultures, such different work ethic, such, you know, I, I mean, I, when I played tennis, it's not like I was making a lot of money out there, but, and I never, I not, but I never considered myself poor, you know, I just didn't have any money, <laughs> but other players were really playing, you know, there were, there were players that were, that had to win so that their visa would get renewed for the next couple of weeks. If they lost early, their country's tennis federation would pull them back and say, you're not good enough to be out there. So I, you know, you, you come to understand all these different people and the different pressures they they either they've imposed on them or their parents have or their coach has or their government has. And you, you, you learn in a hurry how varied and complicated the planet is. And then if you're somebody like me, and this was another part of my commencement speech, I was urging all these young kids to, you know, a lot of people consider money to be the, the ultimate, the only real report card. I said, please see as much of the planet as you can. This is a remarkable, it's a remarkable planet. And that, this is another thing I said to Rachel. <laughs> I've said to Rachel and her brother all their whole lives. Like, I am absolutely convinced, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I am absolutely convinced this is the greatest planet in the galaxy, like in the whole universe. I mean, what other planet has oceans and trees and cocker spaniels? Like, <laughs> mm, what other planet? And the doggies, yeah. Possibly, <laughs> like, there, you have to see it, especially now because we're, we've been such terrible caretakers of it and guardians of our own planet. Go out there and see it. One of my great joys in, in my job covering sports is that it has taken me around the world. And there's still plenty I need to still see. But that is just one of the great perks of this job. I 100% agree with you, Mary. I, I literally had this conversation with my mom this weekend just because I grew up so not wanting to travel anywhere. I was petrified of airplanes. And she said, I can't believe of that. My two daughters, you're the, you know, you're the world traveler. But you're right. It's our jobs. And how blessed are we to be able to see these beautiful parts of the world? And, and now every two years, we don't have to wait every four years for the Olympics. We can see it every two years, these great countries and, and travel on our own. So I, I think that's great advice. You're right. Go see other things and, and surround yourself with people of different cultures and foods of different cultures and learn about different people because this yeah. world... And, yeah, and, it's special. And Catherine, to your, just to underscore your point, one of the, you know, tennis had already taken me to amazing cities, Paris and Rome and London and, you know, all these, all the great cities of, of the world where tennis is played. But then the Winter Olympics, 
all of a sudden I'm going to uh, the Swiss Alps and the Italian. And the, like all of a sudden I'm seeing parts of the world where tennis never took me, you know? And, yeah. and I'm, I'm thinking, man, this is the greatest scam of all time. <laughs> I continue to believe that it's the greatest scam of all time. Yes, we have to pinch ourselves, don't we? I know I've yeah. taken up so much of your time already, Mary, and I, I just have a few more fun little off-the-cuff questions that I like to ask um, yeah, some, some, some of my guests. Hey, so, hey. All right, what is your guilty pleasure? Uh, sitting around and not exercising and reading novels. The only time I know that I'm really relaxing is when I'm sitting around reading fiction. Oh, I love. Okay, so that's I'm my not next that question. Guilty about it, but I'm not that guilty Th- about it. That's yeah, and that's I not really. I mean, <laughs> you're not telling me you eat chocolate okay, bonbons okay, my, all day okay, long. And <laughs> all right, all right. If if you have to, if I have to give you one guilty pleasure, it's Cheetos. Oh my gosh, Cheetos. A woman after Cheetos my own on heart. the couch. How's that? Nice. So you're on the couch. You're eating yeah. your Cheetos and you're reading a book. What is your favorite book? <laughs> Ah, uh, my favorite book. Oy. Uh my favorite book is is pro- is To Kill a Mockingbird. It's also my Aww. favorite movie. Mm, um, yeah, choice. that one. That's front and center. Um, are you Are you currently but, reading a book? Uh, I just finished Katie Tour's book um, called Unbelievable. It's she chronicles what it was like to follow around Donald Trump the year before he won the election, and then. I mean, Katie turned, and I like her anyway. I like her on TV. Um, and it's a fun book. It's called Unbelievable. And it's it's kind of horrifying mm-hmm. what she had to go through, the death threats she faced. Oh, my gosh. I can uh, imagine. Trump, Trump calling her out. I mean, by the end of the book, she's got her own security around her because it, it had grown so dangerous to be her on the road following Donald Trump. So I would wow. recommend that book to anybody if you're yeah, interested Katie- at all in politics. Katie does a tremendous yep. job on the air. Of course, a colleague of ours over uh, on the NBC News division, but she does a great job. Yeah. That's the book. So moving to the one item besides your cell phone that you cannot leave home without. Besides my cell phone. Um, it, I don't know if it's cheating. If I, I, if I say my backpack, my backpack has got everything I need. It's got my wallet. It's got electronics. It's got the magazines I'm reading. It's got the books. I'm, my backpack is, it can weigh up to, every now and then I weigh it at the airport. And That's probably not a smart idea. <laughs> They're asking you if you'd Honestly, like to check the bag instead of carry it on your back, right? Exactly. And every now and then I'll just plop it down there because I'll, I'll think to myself, Jesus, this thing is getting ridiculous. And it'll be like 37 pounds of, <laughs> oh of backpack. Like, what the hell? What am I? What am I? Uh, I need a Sherpa to carry just yeah. my backpack around. That's funny. Yeah, you know, so Us I Weekly does a feature every week that says what's in your bag so maybe they should come to you and open oh, up that God. backpack and see the bag of tricks you have in there <laughs> or maybe they it's, shouldn't it's re if they really should it's it's i i should probably clear it out and hose it down actually now that i think about it what is the uh the top item on your bucket list right now <laughs> top item on my bucket list i don't really have a bucket to speak of but i am hoping that next year usually um i do features for the upcoming olympics so I hope to go to Japan next year. I hope I hope that that's part of my my bucket list is to do features in Japan. Oh, I love that. They well, we they yeah, we hope Are so too because I I like you. I think I am, but uh, we will. I'm awaiting Excellent. my assignment. Uh, I hope it is in Tokyo, and um, that's the plan as of now. So 
Yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. I mean, I've I've done uh, three Olympics. I'm not quite up to your numbers yet, but I've done three, and they've all been dreams come true for me. I mean, growing up a kid, the Olympics were the the top creme de la creme. If there's one sporting event I could ever cover in my life, that would be it. And I've had the great opportunity to do yep. three. So, oh my gosh, super excited. But, well, oh, that's great. Well, I hope you get to go to Japan and do the features so that we can watch them because your features are amazing. <laughs> Everything you do is amazing. So, well, Mary, you know, we said we needed the Mary Carrillo types and we got Mary Carrillo. So I am super pumped. I could sit here and talk to you for hours, but I know, uh, <laughs> I know you have a, a life Call to live. Call me back with. someday. I'd yeah, be happy I will. to come back on. I will. Well, thank you so much, Mary. This has been so much fun, and, and I hope to see you one of your trips to New York City as well. That would be great, Catherine. I'm around. A huge thank you to the Mary Carrillo, who is a joy to talk to, one of my colleagues at NBC Sports. You can download the On Her Turf podcast on the Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Let us know what you think. We want to hear from you, and we want you to chime in. You can also follow us on Instagram at On Her Turf. Have a great rest of your day, and be sure to join us next time for the On Her Turf podcast.